audio check. On this episode, we explore what it's like to practice pharmacy in Canada. But first, just wanted to tell you about something I decided to do recently, and that's professional headshots. So I decided to have them done with Chris Headshots down here in South Florida. He did an awesome job, and he's actually going to be hooking up any listeners looking to do the same with the free additional edit if you mention RX Radio. Plus, if you actually go to his website for the first time, you actually get a $50 coupon pop up there. So definitely take advantage of that. He does individual group and corporate headshots. I'm going to include a link in the bio if you're interested in learning more about it. But without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of RX Radio. I am your host, Dr. Richard Waith. And with me today, I have a very awesome, special international guest. Welcome, Brandy. Hi, Richard. So excited to be here. I'm so happy to have you on. I haven't done an international episode in a while, so um, you're going to be blessing us with your presence from far, far away up north uh, in Canada. Not so far away, but you guys think it is. So yes, it is. (laughs) Well, I guess for me, because I'm all the way in Miami. So for me, it's super far, but I'm sure there's a couple of people that might be tuning in. That's fairly close to you. So, but anyway. Yeah, very true. (laughs) So let's start by you just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself. All right. So I'm uh, 29 years old and I went to school in Ontario. For those of you down south, Canada is actually a lot bigger um, space-wise. We only have about, we have 10 provinces, three territories. So we're not divided into like tons of states the way that you guys are. I come from a province called Ontario, which is very large. That's where I went to uh, pharmacy school, and that's where I graduated from. But I moved out here to the West Coast, beautiful British Columbia, which is about two hours north of Seattle, just for reference. And I've been living and working out here since I graduated about four and a half years ago now. That's awesome. So, and what's the city that you live in? Technically, I live I live in a suburb called White Rock, which is about 40 minutes south of our metropolitan city, Vancouver, British Columbia. And Vancouver is actually where I work. Oh, cool. Okay. So when you say suburb, it's like very small. Is it like small towny like or or is it like a just huge suburb where it's like vast of like the same types of homes or what is that? What is that situation like? It's a fairly small jurisdiction, maybe 10,000 people or so, a very wealthy community and traditionally known as a a very old community. So kind of a retirement, you know, people with money, they, they leave Vancouver and move to White Rock to live there. So that's where I initially practiced when I first graduated. And I just left there a couple of months ago and I loved practicing. It was a heavily geriatric population so a lot of chronic disease that kind of thing yeah. and people who had a lot of money but 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 didn't know how to uh, translate that into improving their health hmm. that's interesting and um, you know I do want to get into talking about what school is like for you but what is it what is it that you're doing now what type of community or what type of pharmacy setting are you working in now so I'm working in a community pharmacy but I just don't really think that's the right word for it I work in a, a internationally infamous area called the downtown east side and this area encompasses uh maybe five to ten thousand people if you can count them on a good day a lot of them homeless it's if i had to call it something at the risk of being politically incorrect it's skid row yeah it's an area where there's deeply entrenched drug drug users they've been there for decades and decades it's been a highly uh an area concentrated in activism, things like that. So there I'm basically a methadone pharmacist. That's what I would call myself now. Wow. That's really interesting to hear because we have, uh, I'm not sure if there's like that up there as well, but we have methadone clinics down here that are specifically specialized in those types of treatment and and management. Um, But 
would you say that you're also doing, you know, other type of regular, you know, maybe here and there, other types of disease states? That's a gray area because the disease states are so intertwined. I mean, there's tons of mental health that goes along with these addictions and there's tons of infectious disease, uh, chronic infectious disease, things like HIV, hepatitis C, um, skin infections on the regular. So lots of antibiotics, uh, lots of depression and schizophrenia. Yep. So it's, it's very mental health oriented. So my patients who come into me, I, I, I have probably 150 patients and I see about 90 to hundred of them every single day they come in wow. and probably 80 of those people are not just coming in for methadone. They also have another medication that they, that they get from me on a daily basis. Yeah. That's interesting. So being in Miami, we see a lot of, depending on which pharmacy you on, you're in, you know, we can have a lot of very similar types of patients, um, but you know, it's a pretty large city that, that we're in down here. So really, uh, really interesting stuff though, but I wanted to see, so I, I really wanted to compare like the differences of like pharmacy, I guess like the workflow and process. So I'm not sure if it might be a little different in your pharmacy, but maybe you might've had some experience in like other pharmacies in Canada, but Let's walk through the process of like what happens when a patient gets a prescription from the doctor and they bring it to you. Okay. Well, I've got a lot of, uh, <laughs> let's call it normal pharmacy experience as well. So cool. I'll, I'll talk more about that. It's, I don't, I don't expect it to be very different from what you guys do. So the patient comes in, they provide us their prescription. We look up their profile, confirm their ID, allergies, that kind of thing. And uh, we're lucky in British Columbia, we have access to a database that's provincial um, that shows us all of the medications that they have filled in the last 14 months, regardless of which pharmacy, as long as it was in BC. So we can see that, uh, which is hugely helpful. We didn't have that in Ontario. And it was hard to see, identify patterns of uh, doctor shopping, drug abuse, things like that. So we have access to that here. So we get to review their PharmaNet profile. That's what we call it here and see what their um, other disease states are. What have they filled at other pharmacies helps us to sort of profile a patient. When you see a whole bunch of cardiovascular drugs, but they're in just for an antibiotic and you see that they filled at their regular pharmacy, the, the traditional uh, cardiac cocktail, I like to call it. Um, I'm able to sort of put them in a, a category and treat them as such. So I understand that they've got these other morbidities that I have to be cognizant of when I'm filling, say, just an acute antibiotic prescription. That Off the bat, that is completely different, right? Because, really? Yeah. Because, well, when I say completely different, we don't have that type of access to information like you do. The only thing that we have in, that's similar to that is only in terms of controlled substances, so most states um, do have their own um, what's called like a drug monitoring program, but it's mainly to prevent like a, abuse, addiction, things like that, um, and also, you know, ensure safety. Um, whereas we can see if they feel, but, and that's even usually for the state level, and obviously there's 50 states, and there's sometimes you can check the other people's, um, you know, drug monitoring program, but we don't get to see what type of cardiovascular medications they might be on or, um, you know, any other type of medication that's not a, a controlled unless it was processed through their insurance. Um, right. If, and then, so that's where you guys get the cash payers, right? Yes. And even in, even in that situation where with the insurance comes to play, like there's still a possibility where it's only, it only gets flagged if there's like a serious like problem or like a duplication, maybe the insurance will say, well, they also just got this. But a lot of times they're, you know, they're filling prescriptions and we have no idea what they got yesterday or last week, you know, at another pharmacy. So that's definitely off the bat, pretty different. It's definitely a game changer up here. I'm able to figure out what kind of patient I have in my hands. And um, in Ontario, like I said, we didn't have that. We did have that. We were starting to roll out when I left what you described. Um, but again, it has to be processed through a plan and, it doesn't tell you it it doesn't tell you necessarily what they got. It just tells you that there was something else in the same category. And trying to get that information out of the patient or out of a different pharmacy is near impossible. Yeah. And you guys are still dealing with like you guys can still receive paper uh, prescriptions and both electronically and paper? Yep. Cool. Yep. 
and then what's the workflow process like? Like you guys put it into the computer, um, process it and all that good stuff. And how, like, yep. is there usual wait times or what is that? What is that usually like? Somebody fills it, you know, it does the technical aspects of it. Pharmacist does final check, uh, you know, in smaller pharmacies, I'm sure it's similar to down there. The pharmacist might be the only one working and, and mm-hmm. prepares the prescription and dispenses it, counsels on it, collects payment. And uh, that's, yeah, that's really the bulk of it. It's um, it's basically a mainstream process. Yeah. Every pharmacy will be a little bit different in terms of wait times. The big box stores, they'll tend to have higher wait times because they want you to go shopping. And they'll tend to staff in such a way that it's uh, most efficient for them economically. So one pharmacist, and if they're a really busy store, four or five, six hundred scripts a day, they'll have one pharmacist, very little overlap, and maybe two or three shift changes of that pharmacist, and then three or four technicians or more as needed. And uh, wait times in a store like that would maybe be 30 minutes and up. Small independent stores, which I've mostly worked in by choice, mm-hmm. because I feel like I'm able to to develop closer relationships and with patients when it's not a big box store. The wait times will be five ten minutes. Yeah, like I get it as I get it done as quickly as possible, and yeah. we all know it doesn't take very long to grab a bottle of a hundred Ramipril, take ten out, put the ninety in a bottle. Yeah, they've had it three times before this. So. Uh, we've had a lot of, uh, issues, I guess, not issues. Let, let me phrase that. Like our pharmacies usually receive medications in bulk. So a lot of times our bottles are filled with 500 to a thousand, um, you know, I guess tablets per bottle, but there's a lot of other countries and I'm not sure. I'm curious to know what it's like in Canada. There's a lot of other countries that it, these bottles come prepackaged in 30, 60 or 90, depending on like how, what's the typical usage which saves a lot of time, but could be a little bit more expensive per, per drug. What's it like for you guys? That's interesting. I was actually about to ask you about that because in Canada, this is something I really wanted to get into. The We are very blessed to have our drug prices controlled by government. And we don't have the fluctuations that you guys have. And another thing is that you pay per pill and it doesn't matter if you bought it in bulk or you bought a smaller quantity, it costs the same per pill. Mm, so you can buy 10 bottles of Ramipril or you can buy a bottle of a thousand and it costs the same per unit to you. Wow! And that drug price probably won't change more than once per year. Wow. That is extremely different. Yeah. <laughs> I seriously don't know how you guys do it. Yeah, that is extremely different. Like we have, you know, we'll see prices between a hundred count bottle and a 30 count bottle or a hundred count thousand count bottle. Um, very frequently we'll see those prices change. So that's really, really interesting and, 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 um, cool to see. I would say also, I mean, I'm also curious to know as to what, like, what are the patients paying in terms of when they, what their, what's their copays like when they go to pick up their medication? Well, markup tends to be um, anywhere. Okay, so our, we have public drug coverage up here, mm-hmm. and it varies province to province. And then we have third party. And the public drug coverage in a lot of the Western provinces is is a, is good. Uh, the closer east you get, the more you start to see, you know, if you're not over the age of 65, you're on your own. Over here in British Columbia, we're income-based. So we have a drug coverage program that looks at what our income was, our household income on our income tax two years ago and says our deductible is 2% of that. Once we reach our deductible every after January 1st every year, uh, they start kicking in 70% for formulary drugs and then eventually 100%. Um, then there's social support, you know, uh, welfare recipients, et cetera, where they're 100% covered right off the bat. Um, in general, our public drug coverage programs, I don't know what it's like at in the other provinces, they'll allow an 8% markup out here in British Columbia, which isn't very much. And then the dispensing fee, which is a hundred dollars or sorry, a hundred. I wish it was, I was like, well, you guys are balling. <laughs> yeah. That'd be nice. $10. Um, so $10 every prescription that we dispense. So there's this huge thing to get frequency of dispensing authorization, especially in BC and especially in these addictions treatment pharmacies, Mm -hmm. because these patients are homeless. 
I've seen it so many times already. I give them a week of antibiotics and they come in the next day and they lost it. Like, or it got stolen or something. It's gone. And now I have to call the doctor, get the prescription reauthorized, or I have to put an emergency supply under my own name and take accountability for it, redispense it, and risk being audited by PharmCare, the public drug coverage program. So it's actually a better idea in essence to have it daily dispensed but that means say for an antibiotic that for seven days every single day of that week you give them their one or two capsules for that day and you charge the government ten dollars every time for a dispensing fee so you would make seventy dollars off that one prescription let's say it was seven day supply instead of just ten yeah basically so that's the I'm trying to understand like why, how that would benefit. Um, I'm wondering if that would benefit more the pharmacy, right? Like the pharmacy would be making benefits off of the government, I would say. Right. 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 So you guys are advocating for that. Is that like a push uh, to advocate for or. What? Well, it got way, it got really out of control like a decade ago and they kind of had to start putting some limitations in there. Uh-huh. But these patients, like I explained, it is, it's more worthwhile for us over the long run to dispense daily versus have to replace that supply maybe maybe seven times or if we're talking about a monthly antidepressant medication you know they'll come in like two or three times a week saying they lost their 30-day supply so the the government's paying for a 30-day supply and a ten dollar dispensing fee every time it ends up being more logical for them to pay the dispensing fee every single day and that medication never gets lost. And that patient has contact with a healthcare provider on a daily basis. This is so new to me. Like I have never thought that this would be like a problem, but I can see it. What happens over here is like if they lost that medication, that you they're they're stuck. Like they'd have to pay for it out of pocket. Because for the most part, a lot of insurance plans, sometimes they'll cover lost medications. You know, like there's a code they can put in, you have to call like the insurance company and things. But for the most part, if you lose your medication, you're not going to be getting another supply. So that's really, um, that's interesting to hear that the government is currently footing the bill. So there's no restriction as to how many times a patient can come back and get a refill for that medication and be covered. Is that, is that is that correct? That's to me what it sounds well, like. Well, I won't I won't get too deep into it, but you know, it was it, it with anything, it got heavily abused long ago. Mm-hmm. And so they they put a cap on it. They said that for daily dispensed medications, we will cover up to a max of three fees per day. After that, you're not making a fee. We're just covering the drug cost. So if you have a patient who's on seven meds. And they're coming in every single day. And one of those meds usually is an addictions uh, medication like methadone or suboxone or, or uh, slow acting uh, morphine or, mm-hmm. or whatever. They'll be coming into you anyway. So they might as well get their other psych meds or whatever kinds of meds, not necessarily psych meds, mm-hmm. dispensed on the daily as well. Because if they're homeless or if they, you know, vulnerable population, they're not they're going to lose those medications. Yeah. It's common. I'm not trying to say it in a, in a stereotypical kind, you know, I'm not trying to stereotype them. It's just reality. Yeah. It's they just lose facts. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, so it's, it, if they're on nine meds, that starts getting really pricey for the government. Like yeah. you can't have that. So they capped it at three of these daily dispensing fees per day. And then after that, it's just, we're just doing it for no, we don't make anything on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And so let's, let's talk about more about coverage, but for the people that are not likely to come back and say they lost their medication in two days, how was general coverage? So you've seen that there's, um, there's government, there's a government drug plan and then there's also a third party. Can people have both? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So everybody in British Columbia is eligible for the BC Pharmacare, and there's a general income-based uh, drug coverage program. So everybody who comes here, we have to, you know, go online, give them our social insurance number, and then our they can see how much we made on our tax return two years ago, and they determine what our uh, deductible is. And they have their own formulary. It's fairly broad, but, you know, there's things on there that maybe a third party would cover that the public drug coverage program won't cover. You know, uh, Pharmacare is not going to cover Viagra, for example. Mm -hmm. 
um, but your third party might. And they cover these medications as soon as you've paid 2% of your yearly income. After that point, they're like, we're going to kick in 70% for these meds because we want our people to be healthy. Gotcha. So, so it does turn out that the, because of the, there's a, like, I guess, a stratified way of your payment um, for your copay. Not everyone will have the same copay. Um, it's going to be depending on your income. And then what about for people above 65? How does that work for them? It's still income-based. Still income-based. Interesting. Which their income tends to be very low. So that's, they're going to benefit from it. A lot of them will be 100% coverage okay. covered right away. Interesting. Cool. And so the way that the two interact is probably super different from down there. Like I, again, like kudos to you. I don't know how <laughs> you guys manage all of that insurance-based stuff um, and still do the therapeutic part of being a pharmacist. It's crazy to me. Um, up here, we have our public programs and they are obligated to be the first payer. And then the third party through our employer will end our spouse's employer. If we have that, um, they pay as, as long as the public drug coverage program has been the first payer. Gotcha. understand. So if you haven't reached some people, especially the last place I was working, I was working in a very affluent community, literally two minutes North of the U S border. Um, so we had tons of Americans coming up for Tylenol ones, which are over the counter over here, mm. um, coding in them. And we, we had a very affluent community of people who were almost all of them were double covered them themselves. And then under their spouse's plan. So they would come in and didn't matter what their deductible was with Pharmacare public program because their third party would pick it up anyway and pay for it. So yeah. they would never pay for drugs. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, that is just so different from down here. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, especially with all the different drug coverage and, you know, you say that you don't know how we deal with trying to provide like the pharmacy services, like using our clinical knowledge and still dealing with all that. And it, it really is difficult. There's a lot of times where most of our day is spent on the phone with insurance companies and trying to figure things out for patients and getting prior authorizations approved and all kinds of craziness. So it's definitely, um, it's definitely a, a difficult challenge that, could be made easier, but you know, we just, we're dealing with, with what we got. So um, speaking of, I guess, pharmacy services and, and what pharmacists provide, I'd like to talk a little bit or see what it's like in terms of outside of the, the traditional dispensing of medications, what else are pharmacists or what other services are pharmacies providing to patients over there? Okay. So in 2010, I believe it was, it was the year I got into pharmacy school and uh, things oh, were very too. lucrative. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, so we had rebates on generic drugs. So generic uh, generic drug companies would give us kickbacks if we use their generic versus a different generic. And they could, they could negotiate and they could give us whatever they were willing based on our volume. And there was all this, there was lots of money coming in and we were obviously using that to pay for overhead and things like that and other things. So that ended. The government was like, we're not paying this price for this generic drug just so these generic companies have that much more money to give to the pharmacies. So they said, we're going to control drug prices now and we're going to cut them down from whatever you have been um, selling them for. So maybe a generic medication would have been 50% of the, the cost of the brand name after it, its patent expired, they cut it down to like 20%, like immediately. Wow. And it was a huge hit because that other than where we were making that money and the dispensing fees, that was it. Like we weren't wow. providing clinical services. We were, but we weren't re getting reimbursed for them. It wasn't a formalized thing where we were like, we're doing all of this stuff for our patients and the government should be reimbursing us for them. They weren't doing that. We were doing it, but not in a formal manner. So the medication review programs started to roll out across the provinces, which you guys have the MTM from what I understand. Yeah. And so we would, we perform medication reviews. That's one of our services. Um, we'll be reimbursed depending on province, maybe $60 once every six months 
if we perform a medication review with a patient who meets the eligibility criteria, which mm -hmm. might be they have to be on five chronic medications for at least six months with no dose change. And um, they have to be like a BC resident in my province. Those are the criteria. And then we have to justify why we gave the medication review, go through all their meds, identify drug-related problems, fax back and forth with their doctors to get those resolved, prove that we've resolved them. And then we get the $60 once every six months we can do that. Yeah. Um, another thing is we do vaccinations, which is pretty new. Right when I graduated in 2013, we uh, provinces started allowing pharmacists to vaccinate. So now we can perform flu shots, which is a really cool opportunity. I love it because people come into your pharmacy that otherwise are super healthy and young and you would never meet them. And they're just there for their flu shot. You get to meet those people from your community. I think it's a big opportunity. You get to dispel myths about vaccinations, which is one of my favorite things ever. <laughs> and uh, you can also perform all kinds of vaccinations. Anything a vaccine in British Columbia, you can perform it. It's just, you won't necessarily be reimbursed by the government for it. And you might have to pay, like charge the patient out of pocket, the $10 administration fee in addition to the $10 dispens dispensing fee. Um, but so many of them are cool with it, which yeah. blows my mind. Like as a pharmacist, asking somebody to pay above and beyond, just it always scared me to do that. And now I'm seeing they're willing to pay for us to do things. Yeah, They trust us and we have the time and their, doc the, their doctors don't. Our healthcare system is incredibly stressed up here because it's all public. And uh, we, we have the time to sit down with them and they value it. So that that's really cool. We also offer smoking cessation. My province specifically will pay for three months every year of smoking cessation therapy. Um, so nicotine replacement, and they pay us a, just a dispensing fee, but we're allowed to independently prescribe it ourselves. Goes on their PharmaNet profile. And it's a huge opportunity again to build rapport with patients. Yeah. Those are very, very similar, I guess, other services that we try to provide as well. Um, the MTM thing also is, you know, fairly new in terms of the infusion into the community setting. I mean, it, it's, I think there's a lot of challenges that we've been seeing with it. I'm not sure, you know, what the, I guess, you know, what the general consensus is over there, but it's very difficult for us to implement that into our usual routines and workflows, while at the same time, patients aren't very receptive to it because they don't know exactly what it is or why they're doing it. Um, have you guys seen like similar sentiment in terms of, of trying to have those types of services implemented? For sure. Uh, the older generation of pharmacists, so anybody who graduated a decade or more earlier than I did, they are petrified of performing these services. Yeah. Like medication reviews, they're just like, medication review they're turned off they're like I don't know how to perform one correctly I don't know what this is and they have all the knowledge it's just a new idea that they've had trouble implementing so the patients too I totally hear what you're saying every patient is so different some of them are like what is this aren't you just supposed to give me my medication mm -hmm. aren't you just a pharmacist don't you just count pills and like I'm in a rush is this can this be over now but then others are so happy, they like put down their bags, they they lead on the counter and they, they're like, okay, let's do this thing. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. You know, <laughs> some of them are so receptive and some of them are, uh, they'll go out of their way to tell me as if I've never heard it before. Pharmacists know more about drugs than doctors do. <laughs> yeah, it's funny when they tell you that. that I know. I'm funny. like, oh, really? I had no idea. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I know. love it, though, <laughs> because so they're open to it and they trust you. And it's amazing. Yeah. No, it's definitely 100%. So you guys are doing it like right at the counter. There's no, do you guys ever have like rooms where they go separately or do they do like home visits for pharmacists or is there ever any I, other thing like that? In uh, Ontario, home visits are reimbursed. I think you get more money. I think it's like $150 a med review. Wow. Um, and out here, we, we are allowed to go to their home to perform it, but uh, it's, still, it's still just the same fee. So it differs a lot province to province, which I'm sure is just like you guys down there. Yeah. Um, but 
I will take them into another room if they really are receptive and want to get into it. Like I've booked them as appointments. I've had patients come in and say, so I'm really interested in having you go through all my medications because I have three different prescribers. I've got a naturopath who are allowed to prescribe up here pretty much almost everything controlled. So I'll book an appointment with them, but for the most part, I do a sneak attack where we're at the patient, like at the counter when I'm giving them their medication. And I'm like, by the way, you're eligible for medication review and pharma, you know, pharmacare in British Columbia really likes us to make sure our patients are healthy and we go through your medications every six months. And they're like, well, I've never, I've never had one of these before. Is this new? And I'm like, no, it's been around for years, but you're going to this big box pharmacy where uh, there's one pharmacist on shift and he's overworked and he doesn't have time. So he doesn't perform them. Yeah. And I'm not sure how far your, those services go, but we have, not only can we do like the medication reviews and get reimbursed for it, but they've actually started offering a lot of different services that we can perform that are actually reimbursable. And, you know, nothing crazy in terms of the amount, but the little things will start to add up. For example, if there's a patient um, that also meets the criteria that maybe hasn't gotten their flu vaccine, we can bill for having the conversation with them um, or convincing them to get their vaccine. Like that's a, do they have to, do they have to get it for you to be able to bill it? Well, if they don't, you can put like refuse and you can get like $2, but like you, well, you that's could, something, yeah, you know, exactly. that's something. And if we are cognizant and careful to integrate it into our workflow, that can equal big dollars. And it's not even about the money. It's the fact that the payers are interested in paying us anything at all for doing these things. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of other different things that you can, you can, you know, bill for, but again, it just becomes like you, the processes of doing it and then the amount of people that are eligible and then trying to figure out, well, which one should we call? Cause we can't call all of them. And then they call you and then they haven't been to your pharmacy in a year. So like it gets, it gets to be a pain. And a lot of times it, it does seem to be almost like a barrier to completing some of the services especially when you can't even finish your normal daily activities, you know, it really does get hard. And, and I think that's a challenge a lot of pharmacists are trying to overcome um, over here. So um, definitely some similarities there that that is pretty, pretty interesting to see that both countries as a whole is seeing the importance of and, and looking to reimburse um, pharmacists for. So uh, let's move on to, uh, this is also might be pretty specific to your current demographic as to where you're working, but let's talk about like the opioid crisis what are what are the what's the general landscape of that over there and how are you guys trying to i guess curb that situation so the opioid crisis is has been declared a public health crisis by the government of my province um i don't know what it's like down there i know it's crazy it's crazy down there i know that it's a huge result of the mid 90s purdue marketing fiasco uh, up here, it's generally been accepted that the current crisis is a result of that, but there have lately been some researchers who have pulled apart the numbers and have found that it's not so much a result of that. Of course, it plays a, a huge part, but it's not to the detriment that you guys have seen down there. So up here, our major issue is that fentanyl has contaminated our illicit drug supply. The heroin that's already coming in is now being contaminated with fentanyl because it's so much more potent, you know, 50, 60, 80 times more potent than the same weight in heroin. So it's easier to ship because it's so small, easier to get it past borders. So it's contaminated our illicit drug supply here in British Columbia, and that's spreading, you know, across the country. And it's a problem in other provinces, very much so. I'm not trying to say only BC is affected, but we're definitely the worst. And so people are have been addicted for years and years, and they're now shooting supply that's contaminated with fentanyl that's way more potent than what they're used to, and they're dying. They're dropping like three, four people a day was our average, I think, in 20, late 2016. We were averaging four overdose deaths a day in our province. Wow. That's, I mean, it's definitely something that's so hard to deal with, and I think depending on, you know, the situation or the, the location that you're in, there's different sources of the problem, I would say, and different ways that people are potentially overdosing and, and even dying from it. But um, but either way, it's definitely a huge issue. And 
there's a lot of things that they're doing over here now in terms of reducing, you know, putting restrictions on prescription, like in terms of like how long they can fill a certain prescription for, um, how many times, you know, in, in a couple months. We have our prescription monitoring program that we've started, but what are the ways that you guys or what strategic things have been implemented over there that you guys have, I guess, tried to well, fix the situation or help with it? What I, what I first want to say is I think restricting the pharmaceutical supply of it is not a fix for the problem. It just takes our fingerprints out of the situation so that we're not as responsible as we were maybe five, 10 years ago. If somebody is addicted to opioids, they are not going to quit just because their doctor stops writing them a script. Yeah. They are going to find street supply. And if they can't find the pills that they're addicted to, they're going to start turning to the other opioids. Opioid addiction will not be stopped just because it's illegal or just because the supplies are limited from the doctors. If you cut somebody off from opioids, and they've been using them for five, six, 10 years, they're not going to be like, oh, my doctor stopped writing, so I guess I have to quit. That's not how that works. Yeah. They're like, where can I get something so that I don't go through like awful withdrawal? Yeah. So that being said, in British Columbia and in Canada, um, our sort of, I guess you could call harm reduction methods have been opioid substitutes using different opioids with different pharmacological properties such as methadone mm -hmm. methadone up until very recently has been the first line choice for those of the listeners who are not familiar methadone is uh, something you drink and lasts around a day and you have to show up at the pharmacy and be witness drinking it every day for several months or years before the doctor might consider giving you carry doses to take home so that you don't have to show up every day. And methadone is an opioid that when you drink it, you don't get euphoria from it, but it keeps you from getting sick. And so a lot of people will get onto methadone and they think the idea is that you slowly taper off, but I see that happen very rarely. And it's really not necessarily the big goal of therapy for opioid addiction treatment. I went through school thinking that the idea was get onto methadone and taper off that because it's a longer half-life. It'll be easier to get off. Um, methadone is also a self-inducer. So it induces the own enzyme, the very enzymes that process it. So you need more and more as time goes on to feel the same way. And it stores in your fatty tissues. So you go through a huge withdrawal when you try to to taper off of it. So a lot of people just never get off of it or they sub they uh, supplement with street drugs as well. Um, it also rots your teeth and all kinds of things, but I won't get into that. Um, very recently, like within the last couple of weeks, we have released new guidelines, the College of Physicians, that Suboxone is first line now. So methadone is no longer first line. And Last week, they also dropped the exemption requirements where you had to, as a physician, attend some continuing education and apply for a special license just to prescribe methadone, which was a huge barrier. A lot of physicians were like, well, I'm not doing all that because yeah. I only have a couple of patients who might benefit from it and it's a lot of work. So I'm just not going to do it. So access to uh, healthcare facilitated opioid replacement therapy has now been opened open wide up here which is great and then what we're looking at right now is inject injectable uh, opioid replacement therapy so we have one clinic around the corner from where i work where they are working on a pilot project that's been very successful with imported diacetylmorphine which is legal pharmaceutically produced heroin which terrifies anybody <laughs> who is not in the mix. Yeah. They're like, wait a second, I'm a taxpayer. I'm not paying for them to have heroin. Yeah. Okay, well, go ahead, but you're going to just be paying for, you know, if they're out there sharing needles and doing puddle water mixed heroin, Yeah. you're going to be paying for their $80,000 a year hepatitis C pills and their thirty to $40,000 a year HIV meds. So you pick. 
the diacetylmorphine is actually not that expensive. And it only is expensive right now because Canada's government has refused to decriminalize it. So we have to import it through a special access program from Switzerland, which is very expensive. Wow. So we have that going on. And there's these reports getting released right now that are like, we need this. We're in a crisis and this is happening. And government supporting us, which I can't even believe. And I want to be one of the first community pharmacies outside of the pilot project offering this injectable therapy. Yeah, that's interesting. I do wonder, I think we would have the very same sentiment from taxpayers here the minute we tell them we're basically going to be helping, you know, addicts by giving them the same drug that they're addicted to. But I do think that there's seen, there's been a lot of progress seen, especially in different countries as to the success of these types of programs. So I'm definitely excited to, you know, hopefully chat with you again and see how it goes in the future. Um, because it seems like, you know, it's going to be a key to helping with the, with the situation. Um, one thing I wanted to mention too, about the limitations, a lot of the limitations that are happening over here are intended to prevent like new addictions. So uh, that's one misconception I would say that some people might have in terms of like, cause I, you know, I posted an article and I got a lot, like a lot of people are like, Oh, but what about me? I have cancer and things like that, which yeah, yeah. like you're those, a lot of these new restrictions actually are not applied to people that are on chronic medications. Um, it's only to try to prevent like the new cases of it happening because there are times that people go for de- a routine dental procedure and six months down the line, they've, they are still, they still can't get off an opioid that they just needed for three days, you know, three to seven days or whatever. So that's what those things are aiming towards. And I haven't really seen much of like, like heavy restrictions. There are some insurance companies, which this is interesting. There are some insurance companies that are limiting your, your quantity of like your morphine equivalent quantity. Um, I mean, which is, it's at a higher levels. I would say it's not completely taking you off, but it's just putting a limit on a certain level. So, um, there's all kinds of, you know, things that they're trying to do, but I definitely, you know, would love to see, or or would be supportive, I would say in, in exploring the idea of what you guys are about to implement. So, um, I'm definitely looking forward to, to seeing, to seeing the the progress of that. I did want to move into something that's non-pharmacy related though. You are, no one can see this right now, but hopefully there'll be pictures and things like that that I'm going to share. You're in ridiculously good shape. Thank you. Like it's, it's crazy. And like, I wanted to know how, I think you compete, like you, you are, you are fit. She, like people, she is in some serious shape. And I wanted to know how did that start? Where, where did that come from? Cause that's just, you know, not something everyone gets into the type of shape that you're in. Where did it start? Um, during pharmacy school, I'm sure so many people can relate to this, especially girls. Like you don't have time to do anything. Everybody around you is eating fast food. You might be getting four hours of sleep a night. Um, my program was so intense. I had no idea what I was signed up for. Um, I gained a lot of weight really quick and I had always been a fairly slim girl, uh, fairly not fit but still went to the gym still was active and then I got to pharmacy school and within a year I gained like 40 50 pounds right away wow um it was so uncomfortable to finally to experience that I had never really experienced it in a in that degree um so I had to do something so I started working out second year like actually working out lifting and you kind of have to jump right into it and get obsessed with it to a degree when you're first starting out. So I was learning about the science of things. I was learning about the science of ketogenic diets, which I found so fascinating. I wasn't reading just the mainstream info. I was trying to find like scientists who were writing information, scientists like us who were uh, immersed in the fitness community and writing things in not layman's terms, but not like PubMed abstract style terms where I could grasp it. I found it so fascinating and I started lifting and I started experimenting with diets and things like that. And I wasn't seeing like crazy results, but then I just happened to hire this personal trainer at some point in third year who just happened to be a national bodybuilding (laughs) competitor. Yeah. And, uh, and he's actually an IFBB pro now. And, um, he 
was just my trainer. That was it three times a week. And he gave me like a cardio program and I would meet him three times a week at a gym and he would make me lift for an hour and he would teach me like what I was, which muscles I was using and, and what that created aesthetically. And I, uh, he said to me, I, you know, I have some clients in my bodybuilding competition this weekend. You should just come check it out. So I did. And I saw it and there had just been this new division release called the bikini division that didn't require you to be jacked. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was looking for a more feminine look with just a little bit of muscle. What, what I guess most people would call toned. Yeah. And I was like, man, I could do that. And then I, I proposed it to him and I said, Hey, I know it's only seven weeks till the last competition of the year, but do you think I could? And he's like, yeah. So we did it and I placed in the top five and I was more shocked than anyone. And after that, I was like, okay, it's off the bucket list. And then I was like, damn, I missed that. I missed that purpose and that structure. So I just, I signed up for a second show and now it's been like five years and it's gotten to the point now where it's my once a year, four month spurt of discipline and like boot camp. It's like, Time to get my ass in gear. No yeah. excuses, no whining. Time to learn how to remember how to prioritize, plan, all those things. And and number one is being present in my social and professional relationships. If I'm getting cranky at work, that's not okay. Yeah. You know, if I'm like, oh, I'm carb depleted today, that's not okay. I don't get to just be an asshole, pardon my language, just because I'm on a diet. Yeah. So that, that requires a lot of mental tenacity and just um, prioritizing and, and having to be the greatest version of yourself. Yeah. And it teaches me so much every year. So it's crazy because it, it sounds like a lot of work. Like, you know, you talk about the discipline of that and, and it sounds like for you to be able to be in the position, the shape that you're in and be able to compete at, at a high level, it sounds like it's a lot of work what, how are you doing? Like, how are you managing that time? How are you balancing the two where you're still happy socially, you're still happy in your professional career, and then you're still able to, um, you know, be able to compete at a level that you are? We are all, each one of us are so much more capable of way more than we could possibly imagine. We have so much more fuel in our reserves than we will ever know. And that's it. It's, yeah. Do I want this? Do I choose? I choose this. Nobody's making me do this. I'm choosing it. And I'm choosing it because I love my plate full. And I love seeing just how far I can push it and still like perform top notch in every aspect. I love that. That is super. I You know, I do hope everyone has their own different passions. And, you know, a lot of times people don't think that they don't have the time to you know, pursue it and things like that. And I think I hope someone's going to go back and re-listen to what you just said and get to work and, and do whatever it is that they're passionate about. So I, I do thank you for, for sharing that with us. Now, you did mention this all kind of started in school, which I wanted to kind of touch on um, as well. Um, what's pharmacy school like there? How, how many years is it? Um, how, what does it take to get in? And what do you have to do when you graduate to become a pharmacist? Okay, so we don't have, uh, I, from what I understand, it's a little different up here. We don't have an entry to PharmD kind of thing up here. I had to personally do three and a half years of an undergrad before I had all the prerequisites to apply to my program. Mm -hmm. There are, I think there's 10 or 11 pharmacy schools in Canada and there hasn't been. Yeah. It's like, I have that in my whole state. Yeah. So, (laughs) okay. So I've totally forgot about this, but it's actually more competitive to get into pharmacy school up here than it is to get into med school. Oh my God. That's crazy. In some cases, I mean, there's caveats to that, but more or less it's, it's more competitive. Um, There hasn't been a new school in Canada in over 25 years, I believe until my school that I went to, which is the university of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario. um, Until that school came to be. I was the third cohort to graduate from it. And that school is so different because we did not require the PCAT, which is, you know, kind of like the MCAT or I don't know what you guys have done there. We have a PCAT. Um, We have the same thing. Oh, you do. (laughs) So, so they did not want that. What they wanted 
was a, a special profile and a letter of recommendation from a pharmacist and then our grades and all that stuff. Yeah. They wanted to know about us as people. And so I applied and then I got an interview and I was like, whoa, because I was only testing the waters. I was in third <laughs> year of my undergrad and I was like, I still have a year to figure this out. So yeah. I'm just going to try applying. And, you know, I just so I'm familiar with the process. So they invited me for an interview and I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Yeah. So I went down for an interview and one of the parts of the interview was we want you to open that interview with 10 minutes about something you're passionate about that has nothing to do with school or pharmacy. Interesting. So what'd you talk So they about? wanted to see what kind of people we were. Yeah. How cool is that? Do you remember what you like, talked about? I, I talked about motocross because I grew up racing motocross oh, and nice. it was, it was, I'm very passionate about it. It taught me a lot. And, uh, and so I, I talked about that for 10 minutes and they were like, they just wanted to see that we were unique and that we could talk to people. And they just wanted to watch us talk about something that made our eyes sparkle, which I thought was so cool. Yeah. So I ended up getting in, which I was just like, whoa, like yeah. I didn't expect this. I was there with like hundreds of people and I didn't expect it and wasn't prepared for it. Um, so needless to say, like University of Waterloo School of Pharmacy is so forward thinking. It's also a co-op program. I think it's only one of two in all of North America where you spend four months in the classroom and then four months working full time. Wow. as a you know student in whatever yeah. they they kind of mandate which sort of field that you use they won't let you do any sort of pharmacy more than twice so you can't work in more than two community pharmacy rotations so i picked one with green shield which is a third party drug insurance company so i got to see how decisions are made for that kind of thing um and a long term care pharmacy and all that kind of stuff so they make you like seek everything out yeah. They leave no stone unturned. They In fourth year, there's a special rotation that's part of schooling where you they pick something that you never picked in your four co-ops <laughs> yeah. that you've probably been avoiding. Yeah, yeah. So mine was like oncology pharmacy at a hospital. Nice. <laughs> which yeah. I was like, yeah, there's a good reason I avoided this because this yeah. is really difficult. Um, and community was just, it was always where I belonged. So that's what it's like going to school in Canada or at least at my school, which yeah. is the best school for sure. Um, <laughs> I'm not even being biased yeah. at all, I swear. We also had to cover, we had a special program starting in second year where for three years we had this course where we covered one disease state per week. So on Monday we would cover the pathophys. Second, like Tuesday, we would cover um, assessment and diagnosis. Wednesday we cover uh, medchem. Thursday, we'd cover therapeutics. And then on Friday, we'd do a mini case in little groups where we had like a pregnancy case or a breastfeeding case or a geriatric or child or whatever. And we'd all present. And um, and we'd also on Fridays cover the natural health products that are used in that disease state by other alternative complementary practitioners so that we could have some um, background on that and whether any of it had any evidence and whether any of it had any safety issues. That's awesome. That's, that's and how and how many years was it? Was it uh, the traditional? It was four. four? Yeah. Okay. With like no breaks, like it was like oh no summers. It was like class work, class work, like every work term and class term went consecutively. There was no time off. Wow, that's interesting. The only time you don't get we have accelerated programs. Um, there's a you know a select few schools in the United States that uh, it's just a three year program, and those are the ones that don't have uh, summers off. Whereas the school like I went to, it was four years where we did have summers off and you could choose to do an internship or not. But that was completely um, like voluntary if you wanted to do that to get like experience and, you know, make yourself a better like or more attractive candidate when you graduate. So but, so um, what do you have to do down there to get into pharmacy school so, an undergrad or. Yeah. So the it's like preferred you get a bachelor's, but it's not mandatory. Um, there are some people and some schools, some schools are mandatory. You get a, a bachelor's degree. But some of them are you just need to do um, minimum of the prerequisites in two years, which are usually just two years of undergrad. And you most schools also require a PCAT. I think there are a few that do not, but I think they're real strict on the other things like having a bachelor's and having a certain GPA, that kind of thing. 
but there are some uh, there are some schools that don't require PCAP, but for the most part they do. And you know, similar thing, you have to interview. You know, show up, like after you apply, you do what most schools what's called a personal statement, um, which is basically a letter about yourself and that kind of thing. Apply, you have to interview and all that stuff, and then it's four years. And then we have usually our fourth year is usually um, rotation year where every month or sometimes now the big move is people are doing blocks where um, it used to be when I was in school, every month I would go to a different type of rotation. So a different type of pharmacy, but now they're pushing it as to where schools are doing. um, They want you to be in one location, for example, like one hospital institution. And then in that six month period, you'll do all different types of pharmacy at that one institution. So. And that's usually the fourth year. Cool. Now, do you guys have residencies over there? Uh, depending on province, yes. So in Ontario, when I graduated, I would have had to have done a three-month residency afterwards. Or maybe we call it internship. We call it internship. Um, I fleeted it off to BC and escaped it. And <laughs> BC was willing to accept all of my co-op terms as they're sort of integrated into each semester. Like over here, I guess in school, they have a week of like the rotation thing every year. So I had to prove that I had done at least that and they accepted it, which was cool. Yeah. Um, but when I first got here, you can only rate your boards. There's like three dates a year, I think. So you just have to wait for those to come around. So mine wasn't for like two, three months after I'd moved out here. So I was like, well, I graduated, but I am not a pharmacist. So I have to work to make money to live. And I would rather work in a pharmacy than like waitress or something. So I did work as a, like a, a pharmacy assistant, I guess you would say, totally unregulated. And I worked for a couple of different pharmacies and one of them hired me on they had hired me with the intention of of me becoming a pharmacist and becoming their kind of pharmacist manager yeah that's awesome well I'm glad that worked out for you and you were able to you know escape your your in your internship thing that you might have had to do so yeah uh, it wouldn't uh, have been any different it was the same yeah it ended up being the same thing that's funny so um we're closing in on an hour here and I mean, I'm pretty sure we can go for another hour and talk more, but I wanted to close off, I guess, with uh, seeing if you can provide some advice for people that are similar to you in the sense of there's a certain passion that they have that's not actually pharmacy um, that they're doing, or maybe it could be both. Cause obviously, you know, it seems like you are actually very passionate about your professional life and pharmacy, but then you also have another passion. What advice would you have for people that have that one passion in pharmacy, but also there's something else that they need, you know, some sort of uh, itch to scratch. Well, I was to be clear, like pharmacy is my passion. The bodybuilding thing, the competing, it's secondary. Um, even though it requires so much more time and energy, it is secondary. And I'm fortunate that pharmacy, like I happen to fall into a career path that I just, I I can't stop talking about it. I love it. Um, But what I would recommend to people who have something outside of pharmacy is find ways to integrate the two into each other. So for example, I've been lucky enough that I have something in the fitness world and pharmacy and the education and background I have, it spills over into that so much, but nobody off the bat was like, wow, so you have like, you know, a lot about this and this. I had to show that I knew those things. I got very lucky with a national publication up here in Canada, our biggest fitness magazine, Muscle Insider. They, they selected me for like a model search and they found out I was a pharmacist and they (laughs) needed somebody to write some columns. So they asked me to write some columns So I've now been published, but only because of the thing I'm passionate about outside of pharmacy and because I hold those credentials. So I've been able to mix the two and it's amazing. And if you can bring whatever it is you're passionate about, because I know not everyone is passionate about fitness. Some people are passionate about like hockey or golf or knitting football or knitting (laughs) something. If you can show that like, show the things that you love while you're at work 
and watch what kinds of conversations pop up with patients who otherwise didn't really chat with you too much. You know, people who took their drugs and listened to what you said and walked away. If you, if you, uh, if you love hockey, your favorite hockey team is playing that day and under your lab coat, you're wearing that team's logo on your shirt. Watch how many people you otherwise wouldn't have gotten into a deep conversation with. Um, notice that you're wearing that and start talking to you about it. Yeah, and then you develop relationships with people that you otherwise couldn't have had. And then you get to make these huge impacts on their health because they took you in as their friend and acquaintance. And now they respect what you have to say. And now they're listening. So if you can find ways to integrate it, or even if you just want to talk about what you think is going to happen on tonight's hockey game with that patient as an aside, um, that will make your day at work so much more enjoyable. And it doesn't pay to have a huge contrast between how happy your outside passion makes you and working as a pharmacist, because the happier your outside passion makes you, the more miserable it's going to feel to show up at work every day. But if you can kind of meld the two, showing up to work is fun. Mm -hmm. It's somewhere you get to like express things and maybe once in a while have a cool conversation with somebody about other stuff. Yeah. That's really good advice. And I do hope, again, there's going to be multiple times that people are going to have to go back and re-listen uh, to, to the things you have to say. So, but um, I, quick question though. I have one, one last question, but this is an aside because you spoke about hockey and sports and I love sports. How big is Canadian, the Canadian football league actually over there? It's pretty small. Okay. So it's not as popular. We have as like one to two teams per province and oh. it's a big deal. Don't get me wrong. Oh, okay. Like CFL is awesome, but like, and like CFL is badass. I would recommend yeah. anybody comes up and checks out a game because it's full of energy. It's so cool. But like it's the season so short and there's just not the level of um, skill that you would see like in a college down in the States, a college football team. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, hockey's our, hockey's our main. thing. Yeah. Gotcha. No, just that was just an aside. I was just that was a personal, selfish question for me. Um, <laughs> all right, last question: What is your best advice for new pharmacists that's going to be graduating coming up soon? Don't fall into status quo. Don't lose all of the things that you were so interested in in pharmacy school. Those specific little lectures that really caught your attention and stuck with you. Don't start just showing up to work and surviving and keeping your head above water. If a job is taxing you so much where you're so overworked that, that you don't get to have those interactions with patients that you're really passionate about, say you have a diabetic patient and you, like, you just love the topic of diabetes, the pharmacology is intriguing to you. Don't just show up and work for somebody and go home. Like pitch things to your employer, be like, I want to do this rad thing where you know this program where we invite patients who have diabetes and I'll even do it for half my wage you know after hours two hours I'll have this little presentation like implement things like don't wait for your employer to be like we're gonna do this employee like this customer education seminar make it like create it practice it and then pitch it to your employer and be like, this is what I want to do. Don't just settle into the status quo pharmacy position because it's easy to do that. I did that at first and I could only really hang out at any given job for about a year and a half, two years before I had to change. And I hate waiting until I'm desperate to have to change jobs, change jobs often. Uh, another huge, this is huge for me. This is how I landed my most recent job. I was using my days off as a pharmacy manager in an affluent community to take relief shifts, like for $20 less per hour than what I was making at my normal job, mm -hmm. because I just wanted to experience different settings. Nice. And that's everything. I could have gotten those same hours at my job, but why? Like I do that already for 45 hours a week. Why do I want to show up again for another eight or nine hours? Yeah, Go exactly. out there have your full-time pay and then use your days off to like pick up a four or five hour relief shift in some random location and demographic that you normally would never go for less money and just see what it's about. 
And if you really shine there, they'll offer you more than what you're making at your job. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, some really good advice. And I, and I do think that people, I do hope that people will really take that to heart because there's so many things that people become passionate about during school that they've never even knew that pharmacy had to offer. And then it becomes like, you know, that it, it goes up in a cycle and then it comes back down once you kind of hit the real world and you think that those dreams are, um, you know, lost and gone. And I do hope that people will take your advice on, on remembering those things and taking action on what it is that they're passionate about to keep them driven in the, in their careers and in their professional lives. So thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule for coming on the show and providing so much value. I really, and I'm sure the listeners do, we really do appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for so long. Yeah, we finally got you on. Oh my God, I thought it wasn't going to happen, but we did it. (laughs) I was going to make sure it happened. (laughs) Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed what you just listened to. Make sure to follow us on your favorite social media platforms. And however you're listening, whether it be on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or something else we didn't just mention, we'd appreciate you to subscribe, leave us a rating, and even drop us a comment and let us know what you think. And until next time, see you over the counter. Pharmacy.